Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Dave Hanratty and Sinead O'Carroll, the editor of the journal.ie, are with us for the week trending. Um, let's start, Sinead, with uh, Finnair to weigh passengers. Why? This sounds, I think we're so used to Michael O'Leary and Ryanair. This sounds like this is going to be one of these. Sorry, he did suggest that. <laughs> he actually did. So oh, more than 10 years ago, but he did. No, I was talking to the man who wrote the book. <laughs> it sounds like, oh God, you're, they're going to charge you more if you weigh more. But what this is, is Finnair want to update their stats. So they base passenger weight on averages across what generally passengers will weigh so that when they're calculating what else they can take on a plane and what else they can put on a plane like food and all of our uh, carry-on bags, what can the plane safely take off with? So to update, they have those stats every five years, they want to update them and so they're trying to get the actual passenger numbers by getting people who are actually going on planes to stand on weighing scales if they want to. Now I would question... If they want to. Yeah, maybe the voluntary thing of this might actually skew the stats a bit but I presume they have spoken with statisticians and mathematicians which I am not. Yeah it's voluntary and anonymous which I guess would remove a lot of the fears that some people listening may have because I mean you don't want to be targeted you know just like some kind of compulsory thing and like, and there's no other way around it so like the basic principle, uh, principles of this as kind of Sinead is saying is like, like isn't too askew it's about safety it's about you know like I mean kind of calculations and trying to find a new way to do things in a more efficient manner. I yeah suppose. but if you open the door to it suddenly you'll be offering discounts to skinnier people who take up less room and less weight on a flight yeah. you'll find as some airlines I think have done before that oversized people shall we say have been told you have to buy two seats tickets for two seats because you don't fit into one and that's when it becomes a headline that's when it becomes a, an individual story and that's when you get like serious negative publicity um, and this isn't like run in conjunction with some kind of study about human behaviour or anything like, like as we say this is all about logistics you know so like the sexy side of airport management really yeah. Yeah, but I suppose when you consider that people are getting bigger all the time and presumably heavier that it may have an impact at some stage. I presume this is why they have to update them every five years because what would have rang true for Finnair 10 or 15 years ago might not be the same now so they might have to adjust things like how much water we take on. You can't obviously adjust things like fuel but they could probably adjust things like what they allow passengers to take on, what water they bring on, what food they bring on for passengers, duty-free things, you know, the way they sell like the jewellery and like bottles of stuff, all of that kind of stuff might change. Um, I think probably discrimination laws would stop anything crazy happening in terms of pricing for people um, but that's probably why we have these in place so commercial airlines and people like that can't actually bring in rules. Okay, on, on this programme a couple of times this week we spoke about the Ireland-Israel basketball game that took place in Latvia yesterday which the Israelis won and we highlighted the extraordinary behaviour of the Israelis and having lots of guns on display in the side of the court during training and then the attack on the Irish team before the game describing them as anti-Semitic but how extraordinary is it Dave that some of the coverage internationally that I've seen overnight has been lambasting the Irish team for refusing to shake hands with the Israelis before or after the game. Yeah, I don't know if it is extraordinary. This goes back to kind of when we were discussing the year-end review uh, at the end of 2023 and like, you know, it depends. I, I was saying that, you know, we're in a position of privilege almost to be able to kind of speak very starkly about how we feel about things over here and what we're seeing as injustice, but it isn't like a definitive universal agreement across the board. Um, so I wasn't terribly surprised by that. Um, I, even though there have been so many calls for the Irish team to, you know, do nothing and just, you know, kind of go along with it, smile and nod. I'm glad that they didn't. Um, but no, it isn't surprising to see international media kind of 
turn on them and make them the villains, so to speak. It does outline and highlight what a difficult position these players were in. And often with these stories, when we talk about the interplay of sports and politics, it often lands on people in minority sports and often women to try and shoulder the responsibility of what the right thing is. You know, it's the same, you know, we, we experience it, say, when we talk about, you know, money infiltrating other sports. You see people really lambasting boxers, but maybe not saying the same thing about footballers, even though they're quite similar situations. So I, I felt really, really sorry for the players involved. Obviously, some of the players decided not to go. The other players who were there decided to take the stand, and now they've still been lambasted, whereas at home, I'm people sorry, but really there was wanted them scant... to pull out. So they were in a lose-lose yeah, they were, But the manipulation of the foreign media of the story, giving scant coverage to the fact that this exactly. was a response to the insult thrown at the team by the Israelis. A, an insult, and also those images like as much as we we say sports and politics mixes sport and guns do not so the images that you are that they were shown heading into a match with Israel that is not what any player playing a sport wants to see and i think it outlines like what dave is saying the the outlier we are even in europe to to what's going on in gaza that people in ireland really want to see action being taken a ceasefire now that's generally the the most common position here yeah. uh, and that's an outlier position in Complete, in europe still and there's been a bit of a deflection as well from like the executive director of the association uh, camille novak who was kind of saying, like, I don't want to get into politics, this isn't a political situation. Well, it absolutely is. And again, even kind of picking up on what Sinead was saying, like, the women involved become easy targets and people who ordinarily weren't going to pay attention to that fixture whatsoever and don't care about women's basketball to begin with. But a kind of a, a very kind of weak excuse has been made about the guns. It's kind of saying, well, you know, some of these women are actually in the IDF, so, you know, they just bring them with them. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Like, you can say that they were pictured before in 2023 when this wasn't an issue. Well, to picture them now, well, then clearly it must be an issue. Like, they're literally, it's literally a weaponized issue now. It is. It's astonishing, though, and this is an issue, I think, for Ireland. I found that even when we covered the story last night on our previous nights, to express horror and outrage of what Israel does in Gaza is now to end up running the risk of being accused of anti-Semitism, which is ridiculous. But, unfortunately, on an international level now, is Ireland running the risk by showing... Um, a horror at the extent of the Israeli retaliation for the Hamas horrors of October 7th, running the risk of being pilloried for maintaining what we would regard as a humane position. I think that has often been the case in Israel because there has always been such strong support from Ireland for the Palestinian cause. But I think everybody from politicians at the highest rank to people... um, most people going to protest, they have shown and completely condemned what happened on the 7th of October. Like what Hamas did was murderous and atrocious. And I think that has been extremely clear. And I think once you do that, then we should be able to say ceasefire now and not be accused of anti-Semitism or in any way putting the Israeli people generally down. Okay, let's move to other things. Let's move to something more humorous. And uh, Greg Wallace is a TV presenter in the UK from which TV show? Uh, MasterChef, I believe. MasterChef, yeah, yes. Television legend. Greg I will hear Wallace. no ill of MasterChef. Greg with two Gs, well, three technically, but two at the end of his name. He took, he took offence to that many years ago when someone asked him to do something charitable on Twitter and he responded with, like, Greg, like with two, two Gs at the end of the name. So I've never forgotten that. So he's good at his brand, you could say. Greg... So I, I watch MasterChef unapologetically. I love it. I love when it's about to come back on. I love the celebrity version. I love the professional version. I love the ordinary kitchen cook version. And I have watched it like I'm watching telly in 1995. I've never looked up social media about it. I have never gone on the internet and looked up any of the personalities um, 
before, during or after. So I had no idea Greg Wallace is a much maligned character in UK media. So this came as no surprise to a lot of people. So um, he wrote a piece so he for wrote The Telegraph p- describing his perfect Saturday. Yes. And so a diary with Greg Wallace um, and most of the commentary afterwards was his poor wife because he detailed how he journals, he manifests, he goes to the gym to make he sure plays that two his hour video pack, strategy games. He, yeah, yes, which he says makes him a historian. Um, he starts his day at five in the morning, reading a book in bed for an hour. Like, I, I, well, first thing when I wake up, I'm just trying to just get my bearings. I mean, fair play to him, that's discipline. But then he goes to the gym and says that he goes there half an hour before it even opens, but the staff open it for him so he can just go on the treadmill. It's his gym, right? Like he owns it. Uh, I guess. Yeah. And then like he's kind of talking about, yeah, playing with his kid for 90 minutes, but then video games no, sorry, two that, hours. That's, that's the worst bit because he, the child is described, he describes as non-verbal autistic and he almost seems to reward himself a medal for spending the hour and a half with the child before he goes off to do his two hours video games. And the video game is called Total War Saga Thrones of Britannia. <laughs> so it does sound quite historical. No, these things come out every now and then, these daily routines that celebrities have and everyone's always agog at them. I quite love them because they expose celebrities for being let's be honest, weirdos. Uh, Orlando Bloom had one a while ago, very strange, but Mark Wahlberg is the king of this. That guy gets up at like four in the morning. I thought it was half two in the morning. It's half two, you're right, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, he's praying by, by at least four in the morning, because he prays about four or five times a day. He says, you got to stay prayed up. Like, that's his thing. Like, fits in family time at a certain point, you know, goes to the movie set, comes back, showers, get, gets a gym routine going. I don't quite know where they find the time. These these people seem to be living 48-hour days, but, you know, fair play to them. Well, they, they find the time, because, and what makes them weirdos, and obviously makes us sane, is that we do laundry, and the dishwasher, <laughs> and the skill run, and whatever other mundane tasks that we all try and put off, but absolutely can't, because otherwise you get, like, you know, that pile of clothes in the corner on the chair that you haven't seen in your bedroom in yeah, years. Can't so. imagine Mark Wahlberg doing much of that himself now. Exactly. Exactly. Or Greg so, Wallace, for that matter. So maybe that's what keeps us all normal and grounded, and that's why the celebrities, you know, we actually probably shouldn't know this stuff about them. We need to take a break. Sinead Carl and Dave Hanratty are staying with us. And um, we'll talk a lot about what's going on, some madness in England this week, and particularly when Piers Morgan met Rishi Sunak, and also Liz Truss tried to make a political comeback. That's all after this. Okay, continuing with the week trending with Dave Hanratty and Sinead O'Carroll. And uh, let's start with... Piers Morgan meeting Rishi Sunak and a bet being set. Yeah, like where to start? Do you start that the bet was a thousand pounds? Do you start that it was about the Rwanda bill? Do you start that... Well, it was about will you be able to actually uh, deport refugees and get them to Rwanda. So like why as, do we have a bet on people's lives? Yeah, exactly. Like as a country who we're currently in the conversations that I think most people find very difficult to have, um, you know, to have properly and respectfully and in, in a manner that you should have immigration conversations. Whereas across the water, you have Piers Morgan, a TV personality um, who really only cares about his own career, asking the Prime Minister for whichever, whatever reason he decided to go onto this show and, and you know, be strategized against for an hour. Um, and he ends up shaking the hand to say, he, well, he doesn't say, he tries to not say that he's taken the thousand pound bet, but he shakes the hand yeah. after Piers Morgan asks him, I bet you a thousand pound you won't get anyone on a plane to Rwanda. A country that is deemed not safe by most right-thinking people when it comes to asylum, but 
Rishi Sunak wants to deem safe. Yeah, he shakes the hand and he just says, I want to put people on planes like three times as he shakes his hand. It's a, it's a horrible image. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just like to be out chess maneuvered by Piers Morgan. Like, I mean, like, it's pretty embarrassing. And like the entire thing, it was a farce. It was always going to be. It starts off in a very, you know, kind of matey, you know, let's talk about sports. Let's get a bit of banter in fashion. And then he hits him with this kind of incredible, this checkmate apparently. Because of course, Rishi Sunak has since gone on the radio and said, no, 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 I never actually agreed to a bet there. You know, I. Yeah, I think he's trying to say he doesn't surprise. gamble, except he made his fortune through hedge fund trading, which yeah, is gambling. That's rich people gambling. That yeah, well, so he's true. not a betting man, though. Yeah, so he was taken by surprise, which again just exposes him further as like being outwitted by Piers Morgan, which is not a good look for anybody, let alone the Prime Minister of the UK. But no, I mean, like it's vile, and like that point that you're kind of making at the start there. Yeah, it's only for a thousand pounds. Like, Piers Morgan's net worth is well into the millions. If you're going to actually do this and try and say, oh, I'll give money to a refugee charity, you know, at the end of the day. I found that was the most tasteless bit. It yeah. was like, oh, we'll get away with this because we're talking about a charity rather than actually what you're trying to do here is just make a mockery of everything around us. But then talk about tasteless. Then he was in the House of Commons and he was being questioned by Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, and he decided to launch into anti-woke transgender jibes in the most extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, if anyone hasn't seen this, I would say to your listeners, it's worth actually going and getting a clip and watching how the whole thing unfolded rather than just reading about it because Rishi Sunak is delighted with himself. He's delivering his lines and you can see that he's enjoying delivering these pre-prepared lines ahead of uh, during his PMQs. And Keir Starmer stands up and he's genuinely visibly angry and taken aback. I think he's genuinely taken aback that a Prime Minister would go there while... Uh, Brianna's mom was in the Brianna who was murdered a transgender teenager who was murdered was in the parliament building and it's interesting because on the back of what had just happened with Piers Morgan and after chatting for the last few years about how the standards in public life in Britain has reduced that this actually happened and he didn't really realise what he was doing it was like he had no political savvy or political empathy for what had been happening. Well, nuance and compassion aren't exactly words I would necessarily associate with him. And of course, naturally enough, there's been no apology. There's been pressure, I think even from Brianna Gay's family, to just say, can you just apologise for that? But the counter He's doubled down and said, no, he won't. Exactly. Like, he's kind of said that his language was actually fine within the context of what they were talking about, which it absolutely was not. I mean, as you say, these are extraordinary circumstances, very tragic circumstances. That case of Brianna Gay is a horrible, horrible story. It was getting an awful lot of press coverage. He had to have known that she was watching on the mother. And yet, here he is, kind of holding court and just being like, no, it's fine. I mean, like, I understand that from a politician's point of view, especially in the Conservative Party, sorry is the hardest word to say, apology is weakness, but this is a moment where you really have misjudged the tone of the British public, I have to imagine. Because even if she wasn't in Parliament, always using transgender people as the butt of a joke which has become part of the culture war in the UK, that's problematic anyway. Like, if a Prime Minister is using a minority group over and over again, regardless of what people think, their questions there are around policies or whatever about transgender people, using them as the butt of a joke constantly is dumbing down standards in, in public life. And it's something that was dealt with really well in a podcast, the news agents this week, because they talked about that. Rishi Sunak kind of has very little of, in a, has very little experience. He had very few jobs before becoming Prime Minister, and that is a big change. The people who keep getting the Prime Minister job in the UK have no experience and we end up with things like this happening over and over again. And then of course we have his predecessor, the woman who failed to outlast a lettuce <laughs> seemed to be trying to make a political comeback of sorts with a group called the Popular Conservatives, herself and Jacob Rees-Moggs the Minister for the 19th century. Yeah, the Popcons, which I mean you see the name and you automatically think some kind of, oh cool, it's going to be a pop culture convention or something, maybe the stars are in town but no, no, this is Liz Truss's latest brainwave. I was saying to Sinead before we came in here 
here that I was like, if this was me, if I was the Prime Minister in such a failed way, I feel like I'd recede from public life to the point that I'd move to the mountains and take up woodwork or something. <laughs> but if you look at, you know, like the list of kind of names there that are either speaking at this event during the week, the launch of this new, it's not quite a party, it's more of a movement within the Conservative Party to be more, you know, extreme and more anti-immigration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it's, you know, Liz Truss, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nigel Farage, Pretty Patel was there. I mean, this is like the worst possible Avengers lineup you could possibly conjure up. Well, I think, I don't think Farage is a member. He was there as a, a journalist, a journalist. So yeah. speak, watching from an the observer. side. An observer. An <laughs> observer. But, you know, there are people who think that he's still plots in the long run a takeover of the Conservative Party. Putting himself front and centre and making sure that he's part of the story, as any good journalist should do, of course, you know? Well, it's it, she's become part of a, a quite crowded group of people who become popular for being unpopular. So she's used her unpopularity to con- com- really maintain her relevance. So but hold on, the Conservatives up, have been in power since 2010 and basically her message is they haven't been able to do anything because of the woke left-wing civil service and think tanks and groups stopping them from doing things. Yeah, but she, she knows that she'll get a small cohort of people who will loudly agree with her. So I looked up her ratings. So you go look at all the politicians in the UK and they give them ratings. So 66% of people dislike Liz Truss. 10% of, her, uh, 10% of people would rate her as popular in their mind. So tiny ratings. 10% of people think she's popular. She's the 65th rated conservative politician out of 121. And 63% of the country are not interested at all in what she has to say on UK policy. But yet, she remains relevant. Why does she do it? Why isn't she just off doing your woodwork class? <laughs> well, last week we reported that she got £32,000 for speaking at a conference. So come over to Dublin for one day and earn £32,000. So, so she got that to come to Dublin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who put that money up for? It was for a broadcasting conference. 32000 Mm-hmm. For Liz Truss? Mm-hmm. Failed Prime Minister who lasted, what was it, 43 or 45 days? That's obviously, the, that's obviously the rates she charges. Almost £1,000 per day. That's pretty good. Extraordinary. Okay. And actually, Nigel Farage, I, suppose, and I will confess to this, one of my big regrets in my 21 years on this programme was the time we had Nigel Farage in a debate about Ireland's place in the European Union, which we had down the Irish Life Centre, which went out live, and he was part of a panel with, if I remember correctly, Mary Lou Macdonald was sitting beside him on the no side for Ireland in relation to an EU referendum. I had Michal Martin and Richard Bruton on the yes side. Uh, But he's sticking his oar back into Irish politics again, or attempting to, isn't he, Dave? Yeah, he's once again being an observer, I guess, looking on in that kind of journalistic sense that he hides behind. And he was looking at the recent kind of protest, or I say protest, uh, gathering of people, of course, I think there was like 700 uh, during the week and there was, uh, was it 11 arrests possibly? He's basically making the point that Ireland has been too late politically to the immigration issue. Now, he's probably right on that but like I say, I come back to words like nuance and compassion, which I just don't think he possesses and he's saying that Ireland is slipping towards the far right and uh, approvingly so, he's saying that they're kind of following his ideologies he was there first, it's adopting more of a UK Well, mindset. his mate, and I can say this safely because it's not untrue, Herman Kelly used to be a press spokesman in the European Parliament and he's involved with one of the these fringe parties are present. The Irish tra- Freedom Party. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. Okay. Briefly, though, let's just finish up on maybe more positive notes. I don't know if it is positive. Can you imagine Dublin, as part of our clampdown against traffic, ever following the Parisians in having increased parking charges for SUVs? Oh, how many times can I vote? How many times can I vote? <laughs> yes. So the Parisians' Paris City Council held a, a vote to see if they wanted to treble 
So it's done by weight. So if it's an electric vehicle over 2.0 and if it's a non-electric over 1.6 engine, um, you have to pay treble the parking rates if you want to park in the city. So even if it's an electric vehicle or over, so you get, you get more weight. So it's two, whatever the, the, uh, why, why this appalling discrimination against SUV drivers? (laughs) I knew you were going to go there. Yeah. (laughs) I stole my line. I was going to say, yeah, it's it's such a shame to see people who have gigantic cars being targeted in this fashion. Um, they, pay, they pay heavily enough for them in the first place. You not know? enough by the sense of things. I mean, well, but this thing is a status symbol, you know, if you want people to really see it, you know, and really kind of take yeah. note, well if then If you want that to thing. tower above all the rest of us in your big high cars <laughs> so that you can't see bikes and pedestrians and children all around you, well then you may pay more not just to buy the car but to drive it anywhere near the rest of us. Absolutely. Particularly if you don't have a hitch on it, so you definitely don't need it for any farming duties. <laughs> Thank you very much both of you for being with us Nato Carroll, editor of the journal.ie, and Dave Hanratty from the No Encore podcast. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4 30. Today and-